Howdy folks and welcome to the weekly dose of Euphoria podcast. I'm your host Matt Sapala and I'm stoked to bring you this week's special guest which is Ali Fordham. Ali is a personal trainer and mentor doing great things in the western suburbs of Melbourne. She's so enthusiastic about creating healthy habits that last a lifetime. Much the same as myself, Ali battled a prolonged period in her life where there was absolutely no balance between exercise and nutrition, and she was well and truly burning the candle at both ends. A now rehabilitated Ali spreads positivity and balance, and it all begins with a bit of self-love. There's a reason why air hostess say put your oxygen mask on before attending to others, and Ali explains that analogy in depth during today's episode. Now, Ali is also a huge advocate for creating a self-care routine so you can turn up your 100% self each and every day. She coaches you through how to do this through the four pillars that she has built her coaching philosophy around at Halo. That's enough rambling from me, folks. Over to you, Ali. Ali Fordham, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. Thanks for having me. Sorry, buddy's just (laughs) trampling all over you. (laughs) Sit still, bud. Two weeks in a row, Buddy thinks he's running the show, so thanks, Bud. (laughs) Ali, thanks for making the trip out here today. I really appreciate you, you know, fitting time into your schedule to chat about something that I think is so important, and that's, you know, self-care and self-love and particularly how to find your way into the health and fitness industry without getting caught up into specific marketing gimmicks and, yeah. and things like that. So I really appreciate your time today. But before we get into all that mumbo jumbo, let's bring it right back to the beginning and talk to, talk to the listeners about what life was like for you growing up. Okay, so where did it start? So I think I was about 15 when I first started um, getting into health and fitness. was a pretty unhealthy teenager um i was pretty anxious growing up from what i remember um and i didn't really do anything to look after myself so i was you know going to school coming home sitting on the couch eating a bunch of junk food and then you know feeling shit and then going to bed and doing it again the next day Um, and my parents separated when I was about 14 and I think, you know, having like obviously that and the conflict of being at school, worrying about, you know, do boys like you? What does my body look like? Um, friendships, things like that, uh, kind of led me to be a pretty like sad, anxious teenager. And I was quite conscious of my weight as well. Looking back now, I'm kind of like, I was a pretty average, just chubby kid, you know, like going through that um, age, but it became quite prevalent and I became quite self-conscious about it. And my brother one day was like to me, you know what, you're going to come to the gym with me today. And I was like, you know, no, I'm not going, like, I can't do it. He was like, nope, you're coming along. And being the scary older brother I was like okay I'll come (laughs) Uh, so I got roped into it and I actually just fell in love with it like the first session I remember doing like two kilo bicep curls in the corner um did the squat rack and got stuck with the barbell on my back (laughs) all the happy memories (laughs) um but yeah I just remember coming home and feeling so happy and kind of understanding that when you exercise and move your body, you just get this endorphin rush. And it was something that was quite addictive. 
And I was like, wow, like this feels amazing. I could feel like this always. So that's kind of where I first started getting into fitness, I guess. Yeah, for sure, Ali. And I guess that was your first sort of taste of how exercise can play such a positive impact in your yeah. life. Before we go down that road, I just wanted to bring it back a little bit. You mentioned mm-hmm. that in your younger years that your parents mm-hmm. split up while you were quite young. What role do you think that that you know, emotional disturbance played on your eating habits? And did you ever mm. really connect those two together? Um, looking back now, I can connect the two, um, during that phase. I don't know. I think it was quite common for my friends and just like being in that, you know, part of your life to just eat junk food and not really care about what you're eating. Um, but I definitely looking back now, I think I used food as a coping mechanism. Um, and you know, comfort eating was definitely something that I engaged in. Um, and I think actually when I was about 15, I got into calorie counting. So that was just shortly after I joined the gym. And I think having something to control was actually like a release of anxiety in a way to be able to control my eating and to control, you know, what was going into my body and being able to measure everything out. So it kind of went into a reverse a reverse effect of the, you know, binge eating and that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. I definitely get what you're saying there. And, you know, once you started calorie counting, you felt like you were in control of of everything that was going into your mouth. And and for the listeners at home that may not know much about calorie counting, can you break that down a little bit for us? So basically I downloaded MyFitnessPal, which is probably the most common form of counting calories, uh, which is an app that... You can weigh your food and log it in and it will tell you the macronutrient breakdown, so the protein, fats and carbs, and then uh, also the calories. Um, So you can, I think automatically when you put your height and weight into the app, it will give you a calculated amount to consume. Um, And I've actually found over the years watching clients do it that I think it's just 1,200 calories. If you're a woman, (laughs) it's 1,200 calories they're giving you, which... In my belief system, that's just not enough to satiate you, especially if you're being active as well. It's just not enough food. Definitely. Um, A young child should be eating probably 1,200 calories. Yes, exactly right. So it was, yeah, definitely a bit of um, depriving of food that went on during those years. For sure. Dive into a little bit of about the deprivation of food and, and what did that consist of? Did you, you know, were you really strict on how how you were counting your calories? Talk to us a little mm-hmm. bit about how that process happened. Yeah, so I got quite heavily into um, the bodybuilding and like aesthetic kind of area of fitness. Um, I didn't ever want to, well, I did think about competing at one point, but that wasn't really necessarily the outcome, but aesthetic driven goals was where I was kind of at. Um, And the calorie counting kind of took over my whole life. (laughs) Um, I lost about 10 kilos between, I think it was maybe between 15 to 17. So that kind of shift people were recognizing oh like you're so healthy you're so dedicated and that kind of fueled me to then want to count calories more and be even better and get even leaner and you know just keep enhancing the physical component of it um but i definitely think having that much control that took a toll on my social life um you know, I was always going to the gym on the weekends, so I couldn't hang out with friends. Um, I remember on my 18th birthday just being so stressed the whole night because of the calories I was consuming and the alcohol. Um, and just little things like that where I found that I actually wasn't living in abundance, which is like a word that I use quite a lot now because 
it was a very restrictive lifestyle to live. I absolutely love yeah. that, living in a abundance yeah, let's try that one again <laughs> yeah it's amazing and like i guess it applies to everyone in in their own different way like mm. everyone has their their own different meaning about that and you know on the calorie counting sector do you think that you know you mentioned that it that it had a negative outlook which i was much the same i definitely got a bit obsessive with the whole mm-hmm. counting calories right to the t of you mm-hmm. know the I used to weigh cinnamon there you go <laughs> like, like i don't even think that's got like, <laughs> it was like one calorie and i'd be weighing it and I'm like who am i <laughs> i was just gonna say exactly the same but i weighed cucumber which is 90 oh, wow. yeah. water so i think it definitely has that obsessive nature about yeah. it which is fine i think it serves a purpose for a short period of time but mm-hmm. From a positive outlook, how do you think that calorie counting enabled you to understand the role of macronutrients in the body and Mm. what sort of um, measures contain what sort of calories? For example, like a tablespoon of peanut butter contained so many calories. How do you think it benefited you in that way? Um, In terms of benefits, I think it taught me a lot about food and nutrition going from absolutely having no idea to then uh, being aware of. I did look at the uh, micronutrient breakdown as well. So I was always looking at the vitamins and the minerals that were in certain foods um, just out of curiosity and kind of as a nutrition education purpose. Um, I wasn't too stressed about reaching my, you know, vitamin B intake, for example, but it was something I was aware of. Um, and I think going from yeah, eating such an unhealthy diet um, to then kind of being more interested in eating more fruits and vegetables and protein and things like that, it definitely gave me some insight into what foods I should be consuming. Um, I think now I can kind of take a step back and say, you know, there are some positives to it and I need to not be so anti-calorie counting um, just because my experience is necessarily everyone's experience. Um, but yeah, I guess in that sense, it taught me a lot about nutrition. Yeah, for sure, Ali. I'm much the same as you. I I do think that calorie counting does serve a purpose, but for a short period of time, mm-hmm. I always encourage my, you know, my clients and people that I get into conversation with to do it for a maximum of two weeks, just mm-hmm. so you can understand roughly, you know, firstly how many calories you're consuming throughout a day, because mm-hmm. you could be bucketing down calories without mm-hmm. you even knowing. Um, that's from a goal setting perspective, but in terms of sustainability and longevity, I think that, you know, ditch the apps and ditch the scales and start mm. listening to your body a little yeah, bit more, which absolutely. I know we're going to dive into a little bit later yeah. on. Now, just before we tie the calorie counting sector in a bow, how do you think that that sort of obsessive nature played a role in your social life? And, and did you find yourself constantly scanning the menu about what could fit mm-hmm. in, your, in your calories before you went out for breakfast yeah. or dinner? Talk to us a little bit about that aspect. Yeah, I am. I'm actually a massive fan of going out for food. I love eating out. Um, And that definitely was something that I used to get a lot of anxiety about. Um, Mainly it would be social events like birthdays and going clubbing on the weekend. (laughs) Um, I was a vodka lamb and soda girl. (laughs) Um, The whole fitness industry is. (laughs) (laughs) Go for the alcohol with the least amount of calories. Um, But no, I definitely think it stopped me from enjoying... I still went and did social things, um, but there was a lot of anxiety before, during and afterwards. And especially the guilt afterwards of, you know, over-consuming. And I remember just always you know, waking up on a Sunday and being like, all right, well, I've just consumed all those calories, so today I need to eat well and just kind of that cycle of 
you know, punishment and reward system. Yeah, definitely. And talk to us a little bit about the guilt cycle, sort of paint the picture of the emotions that were going through your head and and then the physical actions that took place after that when, you you know, you've had a night or you've had an amazing meal, but you've overindulged. Talk to Mm. us a little bit about that and paint the picture. Yeah, I think for me and for most people, you first you have the anxiety about over-consuming or consuming the wrong foods. And then I think the stage of guilt comes in once you've consumed it because when you're telling yourself that you can't have something you want it more right it's like when you're thinking about the chocolate all day and you try to have a healthy something it's something this (laughs) and then eventually you just end up binging on the chocolate so it's that whole mentality of depriving yourself from it and not allowing yourself to eat it so then you want to eat it more um and then the guilt comes when you've eaten it and i think the guilt is Probably from one, you say to yourself, well, you know better than this to not do this. Um, And then it's also that whole thing of, all right, well, now I'm getting further away from my goals. You know, whether they're aesthetic or health-based, you're kind of taking a step back in your head. Um, Yeah, so I feel like that that kind of comes. And then in terms of the guilt, that would probably lead to going to the gym and burning off the calories um, or just eating less the next day in a not a good amount like tiny amounts yeah definitely yeah. i think those actions are, are really crucial and really detrimental and it ends up being a vicious cycle of mm. of that constant restrict binge mm-hmm. guilt sort yeah. of cycle and yeah. i was actually recording a podcast yesterday and um, I got asked this question about my calorie counting ways and, and mm. how it impacted my life. And, and I recalled a, a moment where I was, you know, binge eating and I used to lead from the calorie counting ways. Mm-hmm. I used to sit at the freezer and scoop ice cream out of the tub and feel so <laughs> horrible while I'm doing it. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, I thought back to it yesterday and this was after I'd been rehabilitated for lack of a better term and, and yeah. got out of the calorie counting ways. And I thought if you're going to actually binge and you're feeling guilty about it, what's the point of doing it in the first place yeah. you know like if you can actually accept in the moment that you know all right I'm in a binge here I think you're more inclined to put the spoon down and mm-hmm. step away because you feel satisfied yet when you're in a binge you constantly feel like oh you know this sucks why am I doing this I should be better than this as you're guzzling four or five tablespoons yeah. of ice cream in your mouth and and you know it comes from a negative way because then you're mm. going to restrict yourself for another week whereas you yeah. know if you actually enjoy the process and accept it I think that it, it definitely goes a long way into um into stopping the binge in the yeah. tracks and I think what you just said as well I think the whole if you're doing something from a negative um position it's going to lead to a negative outcome and I think if you can identify the emotions before you get to that point of binging, then it's a lot easier to cope and kind of break down in your head and say, okay, well, why am I feeling like this? Why do I feel like I really want to eat a whole tub of ice cream now? Like, what am I avoiding? Or what am I trying to suppress? Rather than when you're in the moment, like you're just thinking about how good the food tastes. You're not really, you know, being like, hmm, so why do I feel this way? (laughs) You're just like, yeah, give it to me. So... I think it's good to just really check in with yourself and like you said before, like being able to identify your emotions and understanding <laughs> Buddy, you okay? Bunny wants ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's just, it's so complex. It's something that I've been really trying to understand for so many years now. And I'm still trying to figure it out really, t- yeah, to be definitely. honest with you. And I guess yeah. we're always, you know, we're... we're always practicing and always trying to get better at that aspect in your life and I think you know 
I don't know about you, but having that, those years of calorie counting, it often creeps back into my life mm-hmm. in certain aspects, but having the ability to push past that and, and you know, think about the new holistic regime that yeah. I'm currently living or the lifestyle that I'm living, it definitely takes, um, takes some practice. Yeah, now, absolutely. Ali... Let's take it back again. So you went to the gym for the first time yep. with your older brother. You were yep. doing bicep curls in the yep. corner. Talk to, <laughs> <laughs> talk to us a little bit about that journey and how you, you know, you got into the whole fitness industry and now yep. you're a personal trainer. Talk yeah. to us a little bit about that. So I, um, before I got into the gym, I, I think it was, I was one of those people that it would be like laughable if I ever did exercise. I was super uncoordinated. I was always picked last for sports. Um, (laughs) I used to forge notes to get out of like team sports at school. I hated it. Um, More so probably just the embarrassment of being so uncoordinated and so unfit to be perfectly honest with you. Um, But then kind of the first couple of months me going to the gym my friends thought it was hilarious like I remember posting a photo actually on Instagram when Instagram first came out and it was like beach run or something and just everyone was commenting on it like what you don't run (laughs) what is this about um and so it was quite funny that I did go down the path you know that I'm on now and I think it was probably, I think I was 16 when I started my PT course. So I did it uh, part-time while I was still in high school. Um, so I think after a year of going to the gym, I just thought, wow, this is amazing. I want to help other people feel this good and come from that place and then kind of find the light in, you know, you can actually just move your body and look after yourself and you'll feel so much better. Um, so that kind of led me into wanting to be a personal trainer. Yeah, for sure. Great answer. And I think talk to us a little bit about, you know, your transition from actually learning the content and making it into a a practical sense and developing your own programs and stuff like that. Mm. Did you often lead back into the overtraining sort of restrictive mentality that you Mm. were in prior? Talk to us a little bit about that. I think because I was so young, like I completed it when I was 17. So I didn't necessarily have that much experience in the gym. Um, So everything I learned was through the people around me. So I did a lot of um, shadowing of a really great personal trainer, actually. Luckily enough, I had the pleasure to have a really good personal trainer teach me Um, and also just through the course. So I was quite new to it. I was just teaching people what I knew. Um, And I think throughout my own journey, I kind of realized that I wasn't okay with telling my clients to calorie restrict or to... (laughs) He's having a field trip. (laughs) Sorry, it's just Buddy's uh, (laughs) eating some stuff. (laughs) As usual. Um, Sorry, Ellie. No, that's all right. Yeah, so I think it kind of took me a couple years to understand how I want to coach my clients. Um, but I never felt comfortable giving them calorie restrictions or overtraining them. So that was actually something that I was dealing with internally and doing myself, but not allowing myself to push that to my clients. Cause I don't think that really aligned with, you know, now looking back, I think that didn't actually align with me. And so, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Ali. I think that you hit the nail on the head in terms of that, but he's trying to eat my boxing mitts. <laughs> Probably the last time I bring him on a podcast, actually. <laughs> You're not painting a good picture here, but 
<laughs> All right, Ali. So, you know, when you were 17 and you finished your course, what were your plans with, with your, your personal training? And talk to us a little bit about how, you know, you, you developed the business that you're currently running today. So when I was 17, uh, I completed my course in March of year 12. So I just started doing outdoor personal training in my local park. I would like, I went and bought a few pieces of equipment and would, you know, walk down to the park with my kettlebell in one hand and my mat rolled up, just trying to carry everything. Um, I actually picked up a few clients just through like letter drops and like um, advertisements at Coles. <laughs> I don't, honestly don't know how I found them. Um, I don't think they had any idea of how old I was either. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of where I started doing outdoor training. And then I joined a, a little boutique local gym and did some personal training out of there. And then once I finished year 12, I had my first like full-time proper job, I call it, uh, which was at a big big chain gym, um, being a personal trainer and a fitness instructor, like on the gym floor and things like that. Yeah. Awesome. And how did you go going from coaching outdoors and, you know, running your own show to being involved in, in a big gym scene? Talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the habits that you picked up and some of the things that you saw on the gym floor as well. Yeah. So I, I forgot to mention, I actually started my own business at 17 called Heart Fitness. It was an acronym for healthy eating and resistance training. I love it. I can't take the credit. My brother actually came up with it. <laughs> um, so I kind of started my own little Instagram page and little Facebook page and actually had quite a good group of girls I think they were just like my age local girls wanting to um, continue doing the boot camps outdoors and so then going to uh, that environment where I was like actually employed by them it was a little different in the sense that I had to do things by their terms Um, I did a lot of health checks and program writing like talking like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, And I think that's actually where I started to understand that the way I felt about myself and my body was actually the story of a lot of other women and men as well. So, And talk to us, you know, I know some people may, or everybody gets sees the the fitness industry and the things that they're portraying and, and sometimes they're, less healthy than other things mm-hmm. i'm trying not to slander any yeah. anything that they're doing here but you know a lot of them are promoting unsustainable things and mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about you know your first instinct seeing mm. seeing that industry promote unsustainable um unsustainable lifestyle choices and how do you yeah. how do you respond to that um we used a lot of advertisement like get your bikini body <laughs> uh 12 week shred that kind of thing Um, And that's probably when I was, you know, doing that kind of marketing, um, it didn't feel right to promote that. And (laughs) sorry, buddy is just giving us an absolute show right now. (laughs) Oh my God, you're sacked, buddy. (laughs) You're done. This is your last shift. Back up your box. (laughs) Um, Oh, where was I? (laughs) Yeah, talking about the bikini bodies and the bikini shred. Yeah. So, and I had a lot of clients come to me and ask me, you know, all right, I want to lose five kilos in like two weeks, help me. And things like that, where I was like, I actually just don't feel comfortable with this and kind of goes against what I believe in. And I think the more I went through my journey, the more it didn't align. 
Um, and in, I don't know what year it was, but I actually got to a pretty bad point with my health and I was really highly stressed and wanted to leave that job um, and had a little bit of some complications there. But I remember saying to my mom, like, I don't want to be a personal trainer anymore. I don't want to be in the industry. I have too much pressure to look a certain way and to help people achieve results that I'm just not comfortable doing. And I definitely felt like a really strong, um, I don't know what the word is. Like, resistance. yeah, strong resistance. It just didn't feel right. And I just wanted to give up. I just wanted to get out of the industry because it was, it was affecting myself as well and my own mental health, I guess. Yeah, I think um, being involved in the industry for quite a while as well, I often see that with, with trainers and, and, you know, it often reflects on people and their decisions to go through their training regimes as well. Mm. You see a lot of people give short bursts of energy for mm. a short period of time and then, you know, slack off or not slack off, but don't... Burn out, I guess. Yes, yeah, yeah for, for just as much time and then go back into that same cycle. So... What happened next? What was your decision after that when you decided, you know, enough was enough in that sort of yeah. scene? Um, so it was a lot of questioning. Um, I actually decided to move to London and escape my problems. <laughs> that was my outing. Um, but I do remember when I was speaking to my mum, she said, OK, well, instead of giving up something that you obviously really love, uh, why don't you just be different? Why don't you just do what you believe in um, and you might find that there might be a lot of other people who actually resonate with that too. Um, so I kind of, I thought about that for a while and I thought, well, no one's gonna, no one wants to work out just to feel good. Like everyone wants, you know, weight loss and they want to get toned. And in my mind, and especially at that point of my experience of life, I didn't think there was any other reason to exercise. Um, so I moved to London and I picked up a uh, group training job in Chelsea um, and that the London industry honestly was quite intense and quite aesthetic driven and kind of like how, how good can you be. Uh, so again I still had those kind of feelings. Um, I was only there for six months and then I decided when I came back to Australia that I was going to do personal training, but I was going to do it my way and with my approach and just really focus on like the holistic side of it. So amazing. Yeah. I think that's such a, uh, such a crucial thing, Ali, and you're, you're playing such an important role in, in a growing field. And I think a lot of, we were chatting before the podcast, it's mm. gaining a lot of momentum, people mm. wanting to exercise for the amazing benefits mm -hmm. other than looking good. That is yeah. a byproduct of, of exercise and, yeah. and having, you know, aesthetic goals. I think that, um, yeah, you're playing such an important role. And after you got back from London, what sort of changes did you implement to your traditional, you know, PT outlook where it's more of like a bro science approach? Yeah. How, did you, how did you take a spit on that? Um, so... I found a local gym that actually tried to pick me up um, before I moved to London. Um, and I said, no, nah, I'm leaving. <laughs> um, but then I, I messaged them and we got talking and I went in and I really loved the atmosphere. They were quite, um, that's where I'm work, working now. Uh, they were quite lenient and just said, you know what? Like we want the personal trainers to be happy. We want you to run your business how you 
want to. So I think having that flexibility and freedom to do as I wanted to, obviously within reason, that kind of inspired me to get creative. Um, and I started, I think the first thing I did was like a lifestyle transformation program. And that was basically looking at personal development practices um, it was looking at self-care, body image, um, eating patterns, fitness, and it kind of included everything. So it was there was weekly activities, um, there was discussions, there was personal training and all of that together. So that's kind of where it first started. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So your holistic outlook on coaching consists of all pillars of, of your you know, your health and well-being for yeah. the listeners at home that may not have any idea about what yep. we're talking about. Can you break that down a little bit further that, you know, health and well-being isn't just exercising and eating? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that, Ali. So I think for me, while I was in London, I did a lot of personal development and self-growth. Um, and I really understood the impact that stress and lack of sleep and lack of self-care and overtraining and ill nutrition played on my health um, and once I started to really dive deep into that and work on that myself I noticed just incredible changes in my overall health and well-being and it kind of was a bit of a light bulb moment that okay well if this is what I needed maybe other people would too um, and so I was really quite passionate about helping people outside of the gym as well. And I noticed with my clients, um, that I would say 80%, maybe 90% of my client base are women. Um, and there was such a common thread of uh, poor body image, uh, disordered eating patterns, and just lack of self-confidence and self-worth. And I, I kind of just stuck with me and it was just something that I really wanted to focus on. And once I kind of started implementing that as well as their training, I just noticed that their health and just their overall moods and energy levels improved as well. Amazing. And now your coaching method, what does a holistic coaching method look like to you now? Obviously obtaining all the, the knowledge and, and life experience of, of, you know, your personal journey. Yeah. Um, so movement, I have four pillars of the halo philosophy. Uh, so it's movement, nourishment, connection, and growth. Um, so the movement piece is obviously fitness and exercise. In terms of a personal trainer, my style is usually just HIIT training. Uh, I love doing boxing as well, Pilates style. Pretty much quite diverse with my training, but it's always about having fun. It's not really about smashing people and making them cry. That's not my um, objective. <laughs> um, and looking at people's lifestyle factors, um, advocating for mindfulness and self-reflection is a big one. Um, I get a lot of my clients to do journaling and personal development activities and what else yeah just taking care of yourself um obviously all the basic things like drinking enough water getting enough sleep like that everyone knows that they have to do it but they don't <laughs> yeah definitely we often neglect those sort of avenues in our life and then yeah. wonder why things aren't falling into yeah. place people are like what supplement can i take i'm like just drink water <laughs> that's what you need <laughs> yes 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 i couldn't agree more now ali on the um on the movement sector mm -hmm. I love how you mentioned before that fun is a main priority mm -hmm. for you. That's similar to me in my yeah. coaching thing. I think, 
you think back to when we were when we were young kids we would mm. often move all the time and at the center of that was fun because we were yeah. playing games we were running around you know throwing mm. the ball at each other we were chasing each other and we weren't realizing that we were exercising because we were having a ball and i think um my mentor actually speaks a lot about this dale and he's an absolute legend doing amazing things for pe teachers and and personal trainers in this field are that when we grow older we often lose fun like we yes. we think that we have to go to the nine to five grind and then fun just doesn't appear in our life so I think yeah. that if we can incorporate like what you're doing incorporate a moment in people's life where it's just 45 minutes three times a week of absolute complete zone out and utter fun yeah I think that's when people you know start to enjoy what they're doing a lot more and that's when you start to make sustainable progress and make sustainable habits yeah exactly and I want people to want to come and see me you know I don't want to force anyone to come and do personal training Um, I always remind my clients you're here on your own will but I I do think that you know I've had quite consistent clients for years now and I think it it does come down to the fact that they want to be there and they know that they're just going to feel so amazing during and afterwards as well Um, and if you're not creating a fun safe environment then people probably won't stick on and they won't stay around because I think sometimes I see a lot of personal trainers um, training people for aesthetics and strength which is great if that's what they're after Um, But I think it's really important to listen to what the client wants and understanding what is going to be effective for their goals and what's also going to be effective for their lifestyle as well and making it enjoyable. Sorry, guys, I've just had to cut the podcast, pause it there. Buddy's now in the naughty (laughs) corner with me. He's on the lead. He thinks he's not in trouble, though, chewing the lead and chewing my arm. But anyway, on with the chat. Now, Ali, you mentioned alongside your movement pillar was nourishment. Talk Mm -hmm. to us a little bit about what nourishment consists of. Obviously, anyone that knows you or in your community knows that you adopt a plant-based diet and and obviously plant-based lifestyle. Talk to us a little bit about how you know, nourishing your body with whole food plant is so important. Yeah, so nourishment for me is something that has really taken off since I went plant-based. Um, I, growing up, had really severe stomach issues um, and it just went undiagnosed. I had all the tests and the procedures and nothing came back and it was put down to IBS, which I think is a very common, I'm going to say diagnosis, it's not actually diagnosable, but Uh, I think a lot of people just get told, you know what, you've got irritable bowel syndrome. So (laughs) we don't know. That's what it is. (laughs) Um, And I spent years just being in like copious amounts of pain from eating. But also I think lifestyle factors definitely played a big role of that. Obviously, stress and the gut are quite linked. Um, Moving to London, I really was just on a mission to heal myself in every way possible and I did some googling (laughs) as you do (laughs) Dr Google Dr Google and I came across this woman who was talking about how going plant-based helped her IBS and you know she doesn't have all of the symptoms she used to have so I looked into veganism and I thought, all right, well, I'll go vegetarian because uh, my friend that I was living with at the time was vegetarian and meat was really expensive in London and also looked pretty gross. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. So I thought, all right, this is a pretty easy change. Like, let's give this a go. Uh, A couple weeks later, I was feeling really, really good. And I think it was obviously a combination of being in a more relaxed environment. I wasn't working as much. I was getting enough sleep, uh, kind of detached myself from the stressful place I was in. 
Um, but definitely cutting out meat just really helped my digestion. And so I thought, all right, well, there must be some truth in this. So I'm going to look a bit more into it. Um, and I watched Earthlings. <laughs> it was a very traumatic night for me that night. <laughs> um, yeah, I sat in my room just bawling my eyes out watching it. And I thought, all right, well, I just don't want to contribute to this. I don't want to be part of this. Um, so I'm going to just try veganism out. I'm just going to give it a go. Um, so I kind of just went all in and just went vegan and I just felt incredible. Like I can't describe the changes that I felt not just physically, but mentally as well. Um, not having to deal with stomach pain every day was a really nice relief. Um, and I think experimenting with more fruits and vegetables and giving myself that freedom back to eat in abundance. I think coming from such a restrictive background, which sounds kind of ironic because people think of veganism as a restriction, right? But going from such a restrictive diet of just eating meat and a few vegetables um, and avoiding things like bananas because they were too high in carbs and, you know, things like that, to then being able to eat all the fruit and vegetables in the world... I just, yeah, it really, really helped me. Um, and so, yeah, I've been plant-based ever since and it's my stomach is in top condition. <laughs> I honestly haven't had the pains and the symptoms I used to have since. So That's incredible. Yeah. And I guess says, you know, you can read all the journal articles and you can have all the science to back you up, but, you know, you are your own test. I mean, exactly. you are walking proof that, you know, I'm not going to use the word cured, but you reverse mm. those symptoms through, yeah. you know, a whole foods plant-based diet. And on that note, what sort of foods do you now use, you know, to connect the word nourish and how do you nourish your mm. body through a whole foods plant-based diet? Yeah. So basically what you just said, nourishment for me, looks like, um, whole foods. I eat a lot of high fat, um, foods. I eat a lot of avocados, nuts, uh, I eat quite a lot of fruit. I feel best when I eat fruit. Um, Obviously, vegetables. I'm trying to think what I eat. I ate a lot of smoothie bowls. I ate a lot of sweet stuff, to be honest. I love, like, coconut yogurt and fruits and nuts and seeds and that kind of thing. Um, and I just a disclaimer, like, I'm very, very big on bioindividuality, and I think that everyone just needs to figure out what works best for them. Um, that's kind of why I don't really like to post uh, what I eat um, I like to give meal inspirations and, you know, recipes and things like that, but I don't really like to tell people how to eat because I think it's really important for individuals to work out what works best for them. And that's going to look different on everybody. So Yeah, I couldn't agree yeah. more, Ali. And coming from, you know, in particular people that may have uh, irritable bowel syndrome yeah. or any gut issues, I think that transitioning to a whole foods plant-based diet just straight away might not be the best option for yeah. you because obviously increasing your fiber intake mm -hmm. tenfold isn't going to have uh reverse effects on your gut so it might might actually inflame it even yeah. more so definitely consult with naturopaths or dietitians or nutritionists yeah. in that field i think it's so underrated and and with the growing trend of social media, we all are nutritionists mm -hmm. and we yeah, all often absolutely. give nutritional advice. But, you know, those people have studied this field and, and you know, are walking proof about what to do in the in those situations. Yeah. So I, I definitely don't discredit those. Yeah. Now, Ali, before we wrap up the nourishment pillar, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you shifted your coaching mindset from the bro science mm. approach to 
meat three times a day, got to get your protein in to now coaching your clients into a a plant-based way. Talk to us a little bit about that transition and were your clients a bit receptive to that? Um, Did did it come up in conversation much? Talk to us a little bit about that. So interestingly, I have never actually, from what I remember, have never actually given um, that much nutrition advice. I've given recommendations, but I've always known where my scope of practice ends and never wanted to really cross the boundaries in that. Um, My way of activism, I guess, is just kind of thriving myself and creating meals that look appetizing um, and just talking about how amazing I feel on a plant-based diet. Um, so I think with my clients, it's honestly just been them asking questions like, oh, what was that thing that you ate? That looked really yum. What was in it? Um, and oh, like, tell me more about that. So if, if my clients ask, I'm more than happy to share my information with them. And I do recommend that they experiment with eating more fruits and vegetables and things like that, um, and whole grains. But I also think that I'm quite strongly um, for intuitive eating and understanding what works best for the individual and kind of just creating food freedom it's like quite a bit of a buzzword at the moment food freedom Um, but basically that kind of ties into that whole abundance mentality and it's like you can actually eat you know an array of food and feel really great and not have to restrict yourself and constantly be counting calories and eating small meals and having low carb versions of things and that kind of stuff yeah definitely so just and steering away from that i guess is where <laughs> is how i work just leave that what whole not to do. pillar over there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no i love it ali and i was actually gonna head into the intuitive eating yeah. sort of after we wrapped up the pillars but i think it's a fantastic segue into intuitive mm-hmm. eating so for listeners at home, can you define what intuitive eating looks like to you and, and sort of paint a picture of how you would intuitively eat? Yeah, so for me, uh, what I went through with the calorie counting and the restriction and the binging and that kind of stuff, it was quite a disordered relationship I had with food growing up and it's probably been the main health concern that I've had over the past couple of years because it's been such a traumatic relationship. It seems like a really big word to use, but it it definitely has taken control of my life. Um, So for me, I kind of looked into understanding what intuitive eating was and I got to a point where I was quite desperate and I just wanted an answer. I wanted to know why I had this relationship with food and why I couldn't just let it go and just you know, eat healthy all the time. Like why could everyone else do it? Why couldn't I? Um, And I kind of stumbled across a lot of information and education on intuitive eating. And it basically just means to honor what your body is wanting. And it doesn't necessarily always work out that easy. (laughs) Just being like, hmm, what do I feel like? And I think checking in with yourself is the massive thing and just understanding and listening and saying, all right, well, what do I feel like in this moment? What's going to make me feel my best? And sometimes that will be pizza or ice cream or, you know, sometimes you might be like, I just really, really want to go out and enjoy a pizza with my friend. And that's totally fine. But I also think it's important to say, all right, well, what's going to make me feel my best? And 90% of the time, that's going to be something relatively healthy, if that makes sense. Definitely. And I think, you know, addressing your core values and and asking yourself how you want to feel is such an important part because, you know, asking yourself how you want to feel in that moment, like, oh, I want to feel free and and i want to feel unrestricted then i think that's a great segue into going out with your friends and socializing Mm -hmm. but if you're 
feelings that I want to feel like um, on top of the world, I want to feel super strong, I want to uh-huh. feel light, then maybe... Eating a tub of ice cream is not the answer. <laughs> exactly right. So yeah. checking in with yourself is such an important important thing to do and yeah. asking yourself how you want to feel, I think, is is the, the winner for me. Yeah, and I think the whole like philosophy of intuitive eating is just kind of creating that food freedom of you know there's no such thing as good foods there's no such thing as bad foods there's foods that are going to make you feel optimum and then there's probably going to be foods that don't make you feel as good um and i think when you can identify that and just remove that barrier like what we were talking about previously about you know not allowing yourself to have the chocolate and then you just end up binging when you just say yeah you can have it but how do you feel in this moment do you actually want it or do you just is that a habit or a routine that you do so and I think that that is a, a practice that happens over the course of, you know, your your whole mm. life. You're never going to stop. You're never going to nail it. Exactly it's right. Like last yeah. night I was sitting at the freezer and, and I keep my chocolate in the freezer, by the way. I know I'm a that's weirdo. but weird. <laughs> It is very weird. But oh, that's worse than the fridge. <laughs> judging you. I absolutely love it. It makes me chew it slowly. So <laughs> it's a little bit of a self-care routine there. But yeah, I was asking myself and I'd already had two little squares and I asked myself, you know, I really want that chocolate, but how's it going to make me feel? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm really content in the moment. Mm-hmm. I don't really need it, but I want it. But I don't want to feel like I've overindulged and I don't want to feel guilty yeah. and I don't want to feel heavy. So I didn't have it. And I think yeah. checking in with myself really stopped me from mm. getting into the binge. Not that that was going to be a negative thing, but just, you know, checking in with myself and asking myself how yeah. I felt. And I think it actually ties in really beautifully with uh, the self-care of not being, not eating when you're really stressed and manic and not eating when you are in uh, emotional pain or like in a quite down sad mood because when you do that you're just fueling that negativity around food you're kind of putting the two together and I think with mindful eating when you're eating when you're really rushed and you're stressed you're probably going to opt for the foods that are fast and easy and that are going to give you that quick sugar fix but then they're not actually going to satiate you and you're going to feel tired and run down later so yeah I think it's good to just always check in and see what you actually need in that point of time Definitely. And I think we could go on in that pillar talking about how we connect, (laughs) you know, food choices to our emotions. But I think we'll save that for another podcast, (laughs) Ali, potentially. Now, on that section of intuitive eating goes hand in hand with listening to your body. And I think that applies more to a movement sector. So Mm -hmm. how do you listen to your body when we're training? And I know we were chatting about it before the podcast about listening to your body and there's a fine line between telling yourself that, you know, oh, I don't really want to do this and, oh, I need a rest. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how would you encourage people to listen to their body when they're moving a little bit more? Mm-hmm. So in terms of movement, I, I, the training that I do with my clients shouldn't leave them feeling like absolutely obliterated and just not mobile um that's kind of not my aim of training and I think in terms of understanding when you probably should take a rest I think when you're in complete muscle soreness and you're at a point where you know you're struggling to sit down on the toilet and you're struggling to type your hair those little things that's probably a fair enough time to say you know what today I'm gonna rest Um, that's your muscles saying that they need to recover and they need some downtime and I think that's a really good indication also just listening to yourself mentally um, this is where the fine line thing comes in because there's one side you might be having a really hard day and 
if you're saying to yourself, all right, well, I really have to go to the gym because I ate really badly today and I'm stressed and if I don't do it, then I'm going to get fat because I just ate all this food and it's coming from such a negative place. I truly encourage people to either A, not go to the gym and then use that time to reflect and actually practice self-care in a different form or really get to the bottom of why those emotions are surfacing and then seeing if it's actually, okay, well, maybe actually if I go to the gym, I'm going to feel better and I'm going to have that stress release. So as you said, it's kind of a hard one. It's that fine line. And I think if you listen to your gut feeling, only you know what's going to be best for your body. Yeah, 110%. I could not agree, Ali, and you're an absolute wealth of knowledge in this field. Um, Guys, if you have any questions for Ali at this point in time, I'll have all her details in the show notes for you guys to shoot a question across or get into conversation. I know she's very generous with her time and would love to talk to you guys more about that. Now, moving on to your next pillar, which is connection. I think Mm -hmm. this is such a underrated part of not only health and fitness, but life in general. Mm -hmm. I think with the increase in technology and devices on our hand, we are losing that connection with with each other. So why is connection so important to you and why is that one of the pillars for Halo? I think um, over the... It's been about six years now since I've been a PT and I've always done an outdoor boot camp and I've created this group of girls and obviously some come, some go, but there's just this feeling that I get after taking a group class um, and it's just pure joy and seeing people of all different ages, all different you know, walks of life coming together and connecting and bonding over something that's actually quite personal. You know, Exercising releases a lot of emotions. It can be really intimidating for some people. Um, and just seeing that connection that occurs really inspired me to make that part of my philosophy. And I think connecting with people has been such an important part of my health and well-being and I find when I'm connecting with people and when I'm actually truly seeing people for who they are it just it makes me so happy (laughs) yeah definitely Ali I, I I think connection is such a huge one for me and it's definitely on my highest list of values I always come back to you know personal training and like group training because mm. of the connection that you get with with your members and yeah. and I think that people flourish from connecting whether they've had a, a tough day at work and, and a lot of people do often have mm-hmm. tough days at work and, and they're thinking of excuses why not to go to the gym I think connection definitely gets them yes. over the line particularly in group classes that's why they're thriving at the moment because people can go you know sweat with their best friend and and really connect and have that time like we said before just to zone out and yeah. and think about nothing else but you know, seeing their friend and, and bonding over burpees for yeah. lack of a better term. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the community. That's what it is. It's really nice to... And there's there's science behind that as well. You know, being part of a community does help us thrive and it does promote more happiness. There's lots of science to prove that we, you know, we as humans need that connection and we need those relationships with people. Yeah, definitely, Ali. And now over into your last pillar, which is self-growth. And I think that'll tie into my next question surrounding yep. self-care. So I'll leave that over to you to intertwine the two. Yeah. So uh, self-growth is something that I kind of 
dove into when I moved to London. Um, as you can tell, it was a bit of an eat, pray, love situation. <laughs> um, what a feel. Yeah, I know. I actually have never seen it, funnily enough. I just know the uh, storyline. Um, Bex made me watch it about three or four times. Oh, really? So shout out to you, Beck. Yeah, there's a lot of movies I haven't seen like that. Anyway, um, so I think personal development is a huge thing that can increase our self-worth and self-confidence and also just how we show up for the world and I think it's really important not just for people who are you know in the health and wellness community I think everyone can benefit from personal development and I think it definitely is becoming more of a topic that people are happy to dive into um, but the benefits of developing yourself and growing as a human means that your relationships get better, your self-worth gets better, you get more clarity on your goals and where you want to be in life. And I think it is really good to just figure out who you are as a person, how you want to show up for others and how you want to best serve other people in the community. So, And what are some practical ways that people can you know, live into their best self and make sure, you know, they're not just settling and, and yeah. I think um, self-care is a big one. Um, meditation for me has been a part. When I say meditation, I'm not actually just sitting down and sitting in silence or listening to an app. I don't use apps. I can't stand them. Um, meditation for me is being out in nature, being calm, being alone. I love my alone time. Um and just giving myself to take a step away from the hustle of life and kind of checking in and seeing how I'm actually feeling and then figuring out what I need to do to make myself feel optimum. Um, Sometimes that will be watching like some YouTube videos. It might be going for a walk. It might be just taking myself out for a coffee might be journaling. Um, I think journaling is one of those things, again, that's becoming more popular, but people don't really know what to do. (laughs) They're like, what do I write? (laughs) Um, I think it's just good. You can get prompts offline or you can, you know, you can always ask me for prompts. I'm happy to send them through. Um, But even just picking up a pen and just writing down how you're feeling is a form of, you know, meditation in a way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and the stereotype around meditation and yoga is definitely changing. A yeah. lot of people associate that with 45 minutes on a yes. mat or an hour on a mat. But I think... Yoga. I forgot about yoga. I do like five minutes of yoga and I'm sweet. Exactly right. <laughs> I exactly. I just... Yeah. I think at home, like a, a five-minute stretch or a 10-minute yoga flow is enough for me to be feeling good. You don't have to spend an hour, an hour and a half in a class. Yeah. Definitely. And applying that into a practical setting that suits your lifestyle, for example... For me, meditation is when I'm stuck in traffic and mm-hmm. instead of getting on the horn, I take a deep breath yes. and chill out and, you know, accept that it's a red light and it's People not going to change. People need to be like you. <laughs> I'm not perfect That's all the amazing. time, but you say you yeah. can apply meditation into different pillars of your life. It doesn't have to be one hour on the mat. So yeah. I encourage you guys to get into conversation with Ali about different ways that you can incorporate meditation and, and apply all of those pillars in into your everyday life. Mm-hmm. Great, Ali. Now... Alongside all of your self-growth and, and self-care pillars, what, what does your routine look like for self-care? My routine. So I am up at five most days for work. Um, I always have a hot shower in the morning because I know that that makes me feel really good and it wakes me up. 
Um, I'm the exact opposite. I'm cold shower. Cold, oh. not shower, cold okay. face wash. So. Oh, I was going to say, a cold shower, I wish I could be that person. <laughs> I'm not that person. I'm just not there. I never will accept that that's something <laughs> yeah. that I will do in the morning. I love it. It's like those things where you're just like, you're prepared to change, but not that Not that prepared. much. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, on a day off, ideally I will do some journaling in the morning. Um, 5am I'm not really journaling. I actually got into a really good routine of doing that for a while, but it just, <laughs> I needed sleep. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of self-care, I always make myself a really yummy breakfast and my breakfast is the time of the day where I just sit by myself in peace, whether it's outside, if the weather permits or just down in silence, put my phone away and just kind of be present with my meal. Um, I really enjoy like making food. So I take my time with that. And that's kind of a self-care in its own. Um, Being present is a big one that I sometimes get uh, like forget to do. Uh, You know, having a busy lifestyle, sometimes you kind of just get caught and days become weeks and weeks become months. So I think it's really important to just take some time out and just be present, whether that just means giving yourself some time away from work or from people um and being in nature is a massive one as well even if I just go for a 20 minute walk along the beach I'm just I'm a whole new person so that's a huge one for me I love it Ali and on that self-care note you mentioned that you do get up early quite early Mm -hmm. at 5 a.m um talk to us a little bit about your self-care routine the night before getting up Mm -hmm. early and, and obviously you know you're not staying up till one o'clock in the morning watching Netflix. Talk to us a little bit about how you prioritize your self-care to make sure that you're showing up your best self for your clients. That's actually something that I have only started doing this year and been quite strict about. Um, I usually work and then I will go and do a workout afterwards. So I have scheduled my clients in to allow for me to finish at 6.30 most nights so I can go and do a workout at 7.00. Um, I used to work really late nights and then try to work out afterwards and I was just getting home way too late. So I made that a priority to put my health before clients as bad as that is, you know, well, it's not bad, but I think it took a lot for me to just make that switch and say, okay, no, I'm going to set a boundary here and I'm going to make sure that I still am getting my workout in and I know that's going to make me feel good. Um, and then I come home and I have a hot shower and I might journal, I might speak with my housemates, and then I'm in bed by 9, 9.30. And that's, that's my time off. I, I really try not to get out my laptop or be on my phone for too long because I know that that will um, not really give me the best night's sleep. Uh, I actually sleep pretty easy. I fall asleep pretty easy. So Lucky I've never you. had an issue with that. But I, I definitely went through a period of time um, a couple of years ago where I was, you know, going to train after work, getting home at 11 and then getting up at five for work the next day. And it was just not sustainable. So mm. I've made that a priority for sure. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Ali, that's fantastic that you've, you know, you've put your priorities there and you've set boundaries in your, you know, your work life mm. um, to be able to show up to your best self, your best self and give a hundred percent to yourself and your clients. And yeah. I think, you know, that's far more greater than filling that time slot with, with clients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think being uh, now I wake up in the mornings and I'm like a bundle of energy and my clients hate it at 6am. They don't think it's too much. But, you know, I I hope that I can wake up and feel fresh and be ready to take on a full morning of clients rather than being tired and miserable and passing that energy on to them. So yeah, amazing, Ali. And you sort of touched on it before. 
thinking back to when your life was like you weren't taking care of yourself mm-hmm. and your self-care wasn't a priority, what did that look like for you? So I was working, I would usually, uh, so I'd get up at five. Um, I remember actually having breakfast at 5.30, which the thought of that makes me feel really bizarre now because I can't stomach food that early in the morning now. Um, I would just have like some Greek yogurt with some fruit probably, I don't know. (laughs) And I was going to work at six, finishing at two And then I actually had a cafe job as well that I would sometimes go to. And then I would either go back to work or I'd go to the pub and work. I had three or four jobs (laughs) at that point. There was a stage in my life I actually had five jobs. I was a bit of a a workaholic at a young age. (laughs) Definitely. Um, But I, I just filled my whole day with work. And if I ever had three hours to spare, I would feel guilty because I felt like I had to be doing something always. Um... So I'd finish work at about 9, 9.30, and then I would drive myself half an hour to the gym, to another gym, do a workout, get home, 11, 11.30, eat something, and then go to bed. So it was, it was a very stressful life. Um, I was very manic. I wasn't making time for relationships um, and social events. I was prioritizing just gym and work. So it, it wasn't balanced. I think that's the main key thing there. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Ali. And you touched on how you've set boundaries and how you've, you know, done a complete 180 and now mm. self-care is such a big priority mm-hmm. for you. On that note, you do run workshops with Halo. So yes. if you guys resonate with anything that Ali has said through this podcast, you do offer some workshops where I know you go through all of that stuff plus more. Talk to yeah. us a little bit about the workshops you do there and, and where can people find some, some more information? Yeah, so the workshops is something that kind of came as an extension of the program that I put together for my clients. Um, I wanted to create a space where everyone could do yoga and meditation and journaling and just talk and connect with people that feel the same. Um, And I found that doing the activities on their own people were avoiding them. Whereas when you create a space where you're kind of allowing everyone to be vulnerable and everyone's in the exact same position, Um, people are more inclined to be quite honest with themselves and be present and be in the moment of, you know, engaging in those kind of things. So I ran my first workshop would be March, the start of this year. Um, and I just, it was that same thing with the connection. You just leave feeling, you know, full hearted and you notice the bonds that people make and how honest people are with themselves and with others. And it's been one of my favorite things in terms of work so far. So yeah, workshops usually include a workout, uh, just a mini workout and a yoga flow. Um, and then followed by some guided meditation. And then we do, um, some journaling activities depending on what it is. Um, and then group share, which always goes on for quite a while. (laughs) When you get a bunch of women in one room, they talk a lot, (laughs) which is a good thing, but I, it's a very clear demonstration that people are craving that connection. So, yeah, a hundred percent, Ali. And, you know, I've said it before, you're doing incredible things for a space that definitely needs attention and, and you're providing a platform to people to be, for people to be able to, you know, sweat, connect, nourish and grow mm-hmm. like your pillars. Um, so a hat off to you, Ali. Now, before we wrap up the podcast, I, I'm intrigued to see what you would say to your younger self about to board your mm-hmm. flight over to London, <laughs> knowing all that you know now. Um, don't run away from 
things that scare you, really. Um, it was such an incredible experience and I'm so glad that I did it. Um, but I would just say like, things are gonna be okay. That's probably the main thing. Um, I had some really supportive friends and family that helped me through that time. And you know, they kept saying things will be okay. And I think when you hear that, when you're in a moment where you truly believe things aren't going to be okay, it doesn't help. <laughs> um, but I would just say, be patient, be kind to yourself. Um, really think about what you want in life and make that a priority. I think it's really important to understand where you want to be and where you need to go and actually action that and make it a priority in your life rather than just wishing and find that years later you're still stuck in the same position. So, Wow, Ali, yeah. that's so powerful. And, you know, you are a wealth of knowledge in this field and you're walking proof that, you know, you can thrive from this type of lifestyle. So thank you so much for your time. Thank I've had you. a blast and I've learned so much. Sorry I spoke so much. <laughs> I feel like I can go on and on and on. <laughs> no, definitely more podcast opportunities for that. Don't worry. Thank you for having me. Anytime. And that's this week's dose of Euphoria. Connect with myself and the Euphoria Health community on Instagram or Facebook at Euphoria Health. Through these channels, you'll find cool workouts, plant-based recipes and daily challenges. Until next time, guys, I'm your host, Matt Zapala, And remember, don't settle for anything less than Euphoria.